I'm Ben Davies, and this is The Clear Money Mindset. And, and what the research suggests, and this is why, it, it, for some people, this is like totally common sense, and for others, it's like philosophically kind of heady. Depends on you know what, what you like to think about when you're sitting under an apple tree. It's that material acquisitions rarely, if ever, enhance our life satisfaction. Welcome to the Clear Money Mindset, providing you with help and tips to manage your money in a clear and intentional way. I'm your host and financial advisor, Ben Davies. At Davies Financial Sterling Mutuals, we wanna provide you with meaningful tips to help you with your money. Well, we are a little late to the party, but this is our first podcast of the year, but I think it will be worth the wait. Many of life's problems can be boiled down to a lack of balance. This is really true in investing and saving. The investment world is full of jargon and talk of returns, fees, charts, past performance, and guessing at what the future holds. In many ways, we are being told the only thing that really matters is making as much as you can. Many people leave out important questions like, why am I investing? What is the goal I'm trying to reach? How do my investments actually align with my values? What are my values? Oftentimes we're hyper-focused on what we invest in before we answer the question of why I'm investing in the first place. Financial balance is really important. We're going to talk about that very thing today with our guest, Andrew Hallam. Andrew is an international best-selling author of the book Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health and Wealth. He also authored Millionaire Teacher, The Nine Rules of Wealth You Should Have Learned in School, and Millionaire Expat, How to Build Wealth Living Overseas. Andrew has been profiled on such media as CNBC, The Wall Street Journal. He's also the first person to have a number one selling finance book on Amazon USA, Amazon Canada, and Amazon UAE. He has written columns for the Globe and Mail, Canadian Business, Money Sense, Swiss Quote, and Asset Builder. Since 2016, he has spoken at businesses and international schools in over 30 different countries. And I think you get the point. Andrew has spent a lot of time thinking, writing, and talking about personal finance. And we're going to chat with him today about his book, Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health, and Wealth. You're going to love this conversation. It is 2024, a new year, and uh, many times at this part of the year, we like to make resolutions, set up goals for 2024, and kick some bad habits and try to make this year better than the one before. So we wanted to kick off the podcast this year talking about financial success and what exactly that means to us. And we're really excited about today's guest. He has spent a good deal of time thinking and writing on money and happiness. Today we have with us Andrew Hallam. He is an international best-selling author of Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health, and Wealth. He's also authored a few other books as well. And uh, Andrew, we're so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Ben. It's my pleasure. So... One of the things I love about the book is the personal stories you tell in it. And 
I just wondered if you could share with us a bit of your story. What led you to write this book in the first place, especially when I'm sure you know there's thousands of books on personal finance and money. How does this book help fill a void in the personal financial market and, and why did you write it? Well, you know, initially, uh, my first book was called Millionaire Teacher, and, and I wrote that showing people that you know, generally it starts out talking about, um, based on the subtitle, the nine rules of wealth you should have learned in school, one of them being spend like you want to be rich. And the irony there is that most people end up spending you know, far more than typical millionaires and multimillionaires do, but they don't really know it. You know, so they've normalized a certain spending pattern. And then I got into, you know, the power of compound interest and then how to actually invest. But what ended up happening, Ben, was, uh, you know, you, you develop a certain readership and then you develop a certain, um, I guess there's a certain schema with respect to how people think uh, about you and what 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 motivates you or what was motivating me as a as an author. Sure. And I found that a lot of the the followers that I had established, they they had overemphasized, in my view, the importance of wealth and money itself. So it was a book about investing. But sometimes I would say things to them. I'm much like you would as a financial advisor. You'd sort of be looking at the lifestyle package as well. Like, okay, well, what is it? Money's just a tool. And yeah. yeah, it can be used to make you happy. And what does the research say with respect to that? And so when I talk to people about that, people often say to me, like, I'll give you one example. We had, um, and some of your listeners will think this is crazy, but my wife and I, uh, we are we're basically digital nomads. So we don't really, we don't really live anywhere. <laughs> we, you know, we met in Singapore. We've decided we'd take a year off in 2014 to travel and, and we never stopped. So, you know, we're like <laughs> 10 years running now. And at one point though, we bought a condominium in Victoria, British Columbia, and we left it vacant and we didn't rent it out. You know, we sort of furnished it and we just left it. And there were okay. a lot of people, like readers and people that were at my talks, and they would say to me, like, why would you do that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't you rent that out? And I would explain to them that, you know, I created like a T-graph of reasons to rent it out and reasons to leave it vacant. And yeah. reasons to leave it vacant were numerous. You know, like at any time we could come and visit my family because my family lived there. Um it was just this, a place that was our own for our own things. If we have, you know, we don't have a lot of stuff, but you know, I stored a, f a couple of bicycles there, and it was just nice having a place that would be a base in case you had something crazy occurring, like a pandemic. Not that I thought yeah. about the pandemic at the yeah. time, I really didn't. But but it ended up being a saving grace for us, Ben, because we came to Canada for a visit for like ten days, and then. Uh, it was going to be 10 days. And then ironically, we were going to be heading to Ukraine because I was going to be giving some talks there. This was just before the war. So wow. this was 2020, just before the war with Russia, Ukraine, and then, of course, just before COVID. Uh, but then COVID hits and we can't go anywhere. And so it was great to have this place. But anyway, when I said, you know, we listed this, this T-graph of here are the reasons to leave it vacant, here are the reasons to rent it. There was only one thing in the column to rent, like one reason why we would rent. And that was money. money and so yeah. for us, especially for me, looking at research on happiness as it relates to money, yeah. there's there's something known as enough. You know, so many of us don't 
don't actually embrace. And we think that more money will always be the key to further happiness. And so I was kind of surprised because when people said to me, but I thought you love money. I would say, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. I don't love money. Money is a tool that I can use yeah. to enhance my lifestyle or give us the best life that we can. But I don't necessarily love money. I love life. I love time. I love relationships with people. So, you know, a long winded response to your question when I wrote the book Balance, it was really in response to all of that. It was like <clears throat> looking at what truly how truly should we measure success and what is it? So that's what I, I looked at when I started the book Balance. It's funny you say that. I have a, I can remember in the, I think it was two years ago, I was talking with a couple and they'd actually done really, really well in real estate. They, I mean, uh, in Canada, I mean, you're, you have, you know, a BC's like it's even crazier here or than here in Ontario, but, uh, they had done exceptionally well. They had a bunch of properties and they were managing them and they're getting close to retirement and um, stuck in the just the I guess I, I don't know if adrenaline's the right word, but the excitement of buying and selling and flipping. And but they were getting tired and it was costing them a lot of time. And one of the things we talked about is like, well, why did you even do this in the first place? Like if you could go back 10 years, buy those properties again, you never would have dreamed that they would have gone up that much. So now they did. And now you're where you never thought you would be. Mm -hmm. So what is it you wanted to do when you got there? Was it to, you know, frantically flip properties or was it to enjoy yourself in some realm? And we often miss that. Um, that brings me to this question. Uh, you talk about your book in your book, uh, careers, aspirations, things like that. Um, and you mentioned that you love to ask the question why when it comes to careers and aspirations. Why do you think it's important? <laughs> Almost like it reminded me of uh, one of my kids uh, when they were younger. They asked that stinking question, why I'm ready to, <laughs> to tell them to stop. But it, the more you ask it, the more you have to dig down. But if somebody's especially starting out in their career, why is multiple whys an important thing to be asking yourself? Well, I think it, it really delves into the heart of why we make the decisions that we're making and, and having us truly examine them based on what our values and priorities are. So for example, I'll ask the question why, um, with so many things, like if I asked you, Ben, like, why do you want to go to the bathroom? He's like, oh, Andrew, wait, I got, I got to delay the podcast. I got to go to the bathroom. Okay. So if I asked you the question, why do you want to go to the bathroom? You're like, well, I got to go. Well, okay. So why do you want to go now? <laughs> Ultimately it's like, Andrew, it will feel better for me if I go to the bathroom now. Right? Yep. <laughs> so it, it's like, ultimately comes down to feeling good or about life satisfaction with every single pursuit that we have. So if you said to me, yeah, Andrew, I'm training for a marathon and I ask you why, 
ultimately it comes down to your life satisfaction there as well. You want to feel the accomplishment of that. You know, you want to be fit. There's the byproduct of that. Why do you want money? Well, it's to have the lifestyle that I want. Well, okay. Well, why do you want the lifestyle you want? And ultimately you keep digging and eventually comes down to, well, I want to be happy. I want life satisfaction, right? So looking at it from that perspective and then saying, okay, so wait, life satisfaction is truly the goal. And, and so I like when I dig in and ask why, basically you could ask any, you could ask that in reference to just about anything. Ultimately what it'll come down to is people make the decisions that they make, you know, whether they're choosing to raise their kids a certain way or whether they're choosing to work a certain way or, uh, invest a certain way ultimately it comes down to, so, so that they can enhance their life satisfaction so that their life has, has meaning and aligns with their values. So they feel good about it. Right. Yeah. And. And so, but we often don't think about, okay, now what's the next step? What does research suggest enhances life satisfaction? And so in the book, and I do know that like, it's not like I'm dissing money at all. Like uh, when I talk about success in the book balance, I talk about four quadrants of success. So one is money for sure. Yeah. You, you, you've, you've got to have it for sure. And I talk about investing and the importance of that and how to do yeah. it. Um, the most important part is relationships. You know, when we when it looks at when we look at life satisfaction research, uh, your health, um, and then a sense of purpose—that thing that that jazzes you, that that gets you up in the morning, it makes you, yeah. it makes you happy. It's interesting. Last night, um, I was having dinner with uh, a couple of new friends, and the woman works in the banking industry. And I asked her, "Hey, tell me, like, um, she's been working a, a long career, and so she's in her late fifties, and she's been doing it for a really long time." And I said, "Even." During your career, what was your what was your most satisfying sort of window like in terms of like what years were most satisfying for you? And it was so interesting, Ben, because uh, she eventually asked me to stop asking her questions about her career because she hated it. Mm. She hated her career. She was miserable with it. And I was, you know, and of course, this isn't this isn't all that uncommon. Um I asked, well, you know, why not retire? Uh, and she had the money to retire. And, I, and when I say right. retire too, it's not just retire, but uh, it could be retire. It could be choose something else that might be less lucrative. But we get these golden handcuffs. And so often we put ourselves through misery doing something that we hate. And our, our life is our currency. You know, it's the only life that we have. And we're basically trading it, you know, time for money with your employer. And if you hate it, which this woman professed to do during her entire career, it's like, yeah. wow, wow. She's really missed the boat with respect to, uh, she thinks that, well, I'll stay on for a few more years and I'll get even more money. She has a lot of money, Ben, <laughs> which I'll get even more money and that'll be even better for me. But she's trading time for that. So, uh, yeah, I love the philosophical question as it always comes back to, I think, the choices we make based on and should be based on our values and overall life satisfaction. So it's funny because those are things like when you, when you read this stuff in a book, you're like, okay, well that, that all makes sense. And, and, and it seems simple to a degree, but we think of it so little, meaning we are very good at separating money from everything else. And, uh, I think you're those four things you're alluding to. I think you call them a, a table in your book. And uh, a lot of us are 
are living our life with one leg on the table, meaning that the money is the biggest, most important thing. How, how do you break that though? So I, a lot of this just comes from the, the stuff that we're fed every day that says success for you means a new car, a big house. Um, you know, I, I have four kids at home. My oldest is 16. It's surprising to me how quickly that time goes by while you're frantically trying to build a business, do all those other things. And, and you discon you dislodge that from the rest of your life. So if, if success is a table and, and we're dealing with mostly one leg and that's the money we make or the success we have in our career, how do you help yourself, um, put the other three legs on for lack of a that's, better term. Yeah, no, that's an awesome, that's an awesome question, you know, because I think true success is really a balanced table where money is an important leg, but it's one of four legs, right? You have the relationship side, you have the health side, and then you have the purpose side, the thing that gets you up in the morning. I think that as with so many things that we aspire to do, like when we have financial goals or professional aspirations, we, we actually articulate what those are and then we go after them, you know, especially, you know, type a people, it's like, this is my goal. And it's actually yeah. smart to do that with, with any goal. It's smart to go, here's the end result. This is what I want to achieve. And now I'm going to look at a backward design model to see what do I need to do or what steps do I need to do to get to that end point. And so we do that, you know, with just about anything. When we go to school, for example, that's laid out for us. If we're going to university and we're getting a degree, that's laid out. Okay. So the end result is you want this degree. And then here are the steps. Here are the courses that you must take to end up qualifying for this degree. So, you know, so yeah. much of, uh, of, 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 you know, achievement oriented entities require us to take step-by-steps to reach an end goal. So we're used to that. And we'll do that often with finances too, where people will say, well, I want to retire at 60. And they'll do a backwards design thing. They'll sit down with somebody who will help them and figure out how much they need to be saving today to get to that goal and how much money they need. So that's important for sure. But then when you think at, back to your question, when it comes to actual our relationships and the things that can slip through the cracks. So our health and our relationship, our fitness and relationships. How many of us at the beginning of the year will set relationship goals? So mm -hmm. again, when my wife and I came back from uh, dinner last night, she goes, you know, I really enjoyed that. That was, that was really, really cool. And she said, uh, right now we're visiting my mother-in-law in Pennsylvania. So we don't actually know a lot of people here. My wife sure. grew up here, but you know, a lot of people moved away and, and, and I said to her, like, we have to, we have to write down what our goals are and then work towards achieving them. So if we know that we enjoy socializing and we know that relationships are a huge part of what we need to do as human beings to feel life satisfaction, then we can't, when we talk to people say, Hey, you know what, we should get together sometime. And you think about how many times we do that, Ben, you know, you see an old friend and yeah. you're whatever, you're at a gas station, you're downtown or whatever. And you see an old friend, you go, you know what? Hey, we should get the, yeah, yeah. Give me a call sometime. It doesn't happen. And so to sit down at the beginning of the year too, or even at the beginning of a week or beginning of a month and say, okay, relationships and social connections are really important. Let's write down some goals. And then, and I say goals, like let's invite whatever the Smiths over to dinner 
yeah. and we'll see what they can do during this given week. Uh, let's let's have like a you know, like a backyard party and this week and let's everybody know. These are the kinds of things that I think fall through the cracks because we always think, okay, we'll do it tomorrow. Yeah, it'll happen at some point. But often it doesn't. So it's much the same with your health goals too. Yeah, I want to be fit. Well, you want to be fitter. Well, go, well, how are you going to do that? What's your goal? Like, write it down. You know, write yes. down what you actually plan to achieve and work backwards so that you do that much as you would do with a, with a financial goal. Yeah, and it's funny too. Um, often a couple of years ago, I got into the uh, full focus planner. Uh, Michael Hyatt designed it. And they they have all of those things and they make sure you, you don't just make financial goals. You make, they have different quadrants they set out. But I, I even found that, um, I didn't always achieve the things when I wanted to, but everything that I, I wrote down, I've been, you're able to do cause you're thinking of it. Yeah. So even just opening that page back up and saying, Oh man, yeah, I did say that that was important. So if it's still important, I got to do something about that. And um, I love the fact that you've woven relationships into that because at the end of the day, that like, what are we if we don't have that? Um, but that brings me to this. We live in such a consumer debt driven economy, and it's really hard not to compare uh, what we have to what others have. And it's very difficult not to measure our happiness by the things that we're able to buy or what we have that others don't. I think Christmas is another time where this is evident, like your friends who go to school, how much did their friends get for Christmas, that kind of stuff. Like it's all, we measure so much of happiness by consumerism here, at least in, in North America. Um, I don't think, or I think we know deep down that it, it's stressful and it's a depressing way to live. But why, do you, why do you think that we're so drawn to this though? And why or what can we do to switch our mindset from valuing stuff to uh, something you mention in your book often experiences? I think that so corporate marketing is at a whole new level. Like we have as a species, we've always wanted to keep up with the Joneses. You know, yeah. Jones over there has more coconuts more yams than we do. I mean, like you could go back thousands of years and you'll still have this human tendency to want to keep up with other people. And then though, that was a really light touch generally compared to today, because today we have corporate marketing that is absolutely brilliant and it's, mm -hmm. it's ubiquitous. It is everywhere we look and everywhere we turn. I mean, there are people in rooms trying to figure out how to psychologically entice us to purchase yeah. things. Right? Right. And they'll use, okay, what, what base human instinct can we pull on here? Ah, you'll be the envy of your neighborhood. Ah, you'll be super sexy. Ah, and they use all of these, like when you look at ads too, the hidden messages, oh, and you'll be so happy. You'll have so many friends if you, and, and what the research suggests, and this is why it, it, for some people, this is like totally common sense. And for others, it's like philosophically kind of heady. Depends on, you know, what, what you like to think about when you're sitting under an apple tree. It's that, material acquisition acquisitions rarely, if ever, enhance our life satisfaction. So I've got to repeat that. The research suggests that material acquisitions 
almost never enhance life satisfaction. In fact, in fact, in our consumer mad society, we often borrow money to acquire these things. So we yeah. borrow money to acquire something that generally research suggests doesn't enhance our life satisfaction. And the research suggests that borrowing diminishes life satisfaction. So debts, debts weigh on us. So yep. I reference data in the book Balance showing that people with debt generally don't sing as loudly in the shower. I mean, <laughs> it's there's yep. there's something about how it, it literally well, the research doesn't really <laughs> measure the volume of how people sing, but you get the gist of it. When we look at the research on their overall life satisfaction and they're asked, rate your overall life satisfaction on a scale from one to ten. And they're longitudinally asked to do this over time. What they found yeah. is that people who have high levels of consumer debt report lower levels of life satisfaction. So they've purchased something that doesn't improve their life satisfaction. And they've done something to acquire that, such as going into debt, which actually drops the life satisfaction. So it's, a, it's largely pointless when you're really sitting quietly under that apple tree and really yeah. contemplating the the real reasons for these acquisitions and whether they can enhance your life satisfaction. Uh, the bottom line is generally the answer to that is no. Yeah. And, and it's funny in that whole conversation, um, I, I had a conversation with someone this year. I haven't forgotten it. He's, he was in his mid fifties. It actually really struck me. I always sit, tell people, I love this job because you get to see people's emotions at every stage of life. But, um, he was in a particular job where you could retire early with a decent pension. And so we're, we're talking about money and everything like that, but then he kind of stops and he says, you know, the thing I I'm worried about the most is today I walk into my job and I'm somebody. The minute I retire, I walk out and I'm no one. Mm. He has money. Mm -hmm. Everything's fine. He doesn't have to worry about anything. But it's the it's the meaning that he had actually going to the job. And it, it wasn't the stuff that he had. He had stuff. Um, but you, you can't. Buying meaning is a pretty hard thing to do. But it's hard to. In our society, it's hard to it's hard to do that. And. Um, I'm sure you know this stat, but uh, debt to income in Canada, it's reached an all time high. They're saying at, at the end of 2023, it's at 183.33%. It's insane. So just for listeners, um, for every dollar you make, you'd have to make a dollar 83 uh, to pay off your debt in one year. Um, and you, you mentioned, you mentioned in the book, um, that we can take lessons from how the rich or what the rich drive and how they spend their money. And I love the example you gave of your own RV experience and having the option to upgrade that or stick with what you had. Uh, as far as the debt situation that we're in, especially in Canada or North America, it seems really bizarre to say you can learn from how the rich spend their money. But give give us give us some examples because I think for those who don't consider themselves rich, they're like, oh, thanks a lot, Andrew. It's like great. I'll I'll learn from Bill Gates on what he drives. But there's actually a lot of virtue in that. So 
explain what you mean by learning from how the rich spend. Wealthy people don't spend as much on depreciating assets as we think. And so an, a car, for example, is generally a depreciating asset. I mean, over time, the value of that car will drop um, considerably. And what Thomas Stanley and his daughter, Sarah Stanley Follow, found, Thomas Stanley was the author of Millionaire Next Door, and his yep. daughter has continued his research. So he, for uh, his entire professional lifetime, researched uh, multimillionaires in the United States, finding out what their habits were, what professions they were in, what they what they spent on cars. One of them was what they spent on cars. Uh, Sarah Stanley Falls continued to uh, in her father's footsteps. He tragically passed away in a or was killed in a car crash in 2015 when he and his daughter were writing the the book The Next Millionaire Next Door. And though with the continued data, what is surprising is that millionaires and multimillionaires in the United States. Now, this data would have been from, it's about five years old now, so the, the value of, of cars has gone up considerably since then because everything's, sure. everything's become more expensive through inflation and such. But uh, in 2018, uh, so five, six years ago, the typical price, the average price of a car for a typical multimillionaire in the United States was 35,000 US dollars. So let's be super generous and let's say that with inflation today, that figure is going to be like, let's say $45,000. Let's say $45,000. And so, you know, when you look at that and you're realizing those are millionaires and multimillionaires. And, you know, when I was in Victoria, and I had, you know, the condominium that I talked to you about at the beginning of the podcast. Yep. I go into the garage. How many of the cars there are worth more than fifty thousand dollars? A whole ton of them, <laughs> like a whole bunch of them. How many of those people are multimillionaires? Like almost none of them. So, yeah. in a lot of cases, sure, they might have an apartment that's worth a million dollars, but they got a mortgage on it that's probably seven hundred thousand. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, they're not. They're not you know, net multimillionaires. And that's, it's a fascinating thing, man, because you have this weird normalization. It's just bizarre. Um, some good friends of mine, their 27 year old daughter is driving this car that can, you know, literally drive itself. And it's, you know, she's, she's making decent money. She's starting out with this, this new business, but not a crazy amount of money. And she has this car that's considerably more expensive than what the typical multimillionaire pays for a car. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and that would be the case with her general cohort too. So the people who are around her who are also, she's 27 years old, but also young people who are in her sort of social circle, that's the game they're playing with each other. They, so they think that's normal. They think yeah. that, that it is normal to buy an $80,000 car, whatever it is that she's paid because her peer group has done that. But um, when it comes to actually wealth destroyers, cars are a uh, prime culprit. Uh, and then and people's tendency to want to keep up with what other, what everybody else is, uh, is owning. And again, you know, we talk about uh, hedonic adaptability in the book Balance and the research with mm -hmm. respect to that. So, you know, if you buy something brand new, Ben, like you will feel pretty good about it initially, but it's like a yeah. sugar fix, right? You feel like, oh yeah, I got this new car and it's feeling really awesome. Um, <clears throat> this isn't just anecdotal when I talk about how 
over time and it doesn't take that long, no matter what car you have, it just becomes another car. So it's not something that enhances your life satisfaction any more than driving like a 15 year old Honda. And so uh, I'm not just pulling this out of my butt, you know, so it's Michigan true. State yeah. University did a, did a really interesting study on this. Um, the guy named Norbert Schwartz and his team where they ask a series of people to rate the, their satisfaction with their latest driving experience. And it was a really cool study because of course it, it asked a whole variety of other questions. So the people who are participating in the study didn't exactly know what they were looking for, but, but two of the questions were, what kind of car do you drive hmm. and rate your driving experience in terms of your actual satisfaction uh, on your last drive, the last time you drove the car. And so they asked these people this question over a series of, uh, like a whole, uh, they gave them a whole series of questionnaires over time, which is known as a longitudinal study. And what they found was there was no correlation between the actual enjoyment of our driving experience as it related to the vehicle that we had. So, you know, you drive, you drive a brand new BMW and at first you're really jazzed about it, but before long, it's just another thing that gets you from A to B. You just get used to it. We just get yeah. used to it. And that's yeah. the part that we have to get our heads around because everybody says, um, I like I like what Daniel, Daniel Kahneman talks about when he says it's uh, there's two levels of happiness. Um, one's called reflective happiness and one's called experiential. Reflective is what you actually think or believe. Experiential is what you're actually experiencing or what's real. So for example, hmm. if you ask people with brand new BMWs and brand new Mercedes-Benzes, uh, are you happier driving that than you were driving your old Honda? They're like, oh yeah, oh yeah. That's called reflective happiness. It's almost a rationalization, but it's what right. they actually believe. So it's it's real, it's what they believe, but the experiential happiness is the actual happiness that is experienced. So back to Norbert Schwartz's study, people that drive brand new Mercedes-Benzes because they simply get used to the vehicles after a couple of months, don't have on aggregate higher levels of driving satisfaction than somebody driving like a 15-year-old Toyota. And in, and in turn, mm. knowing that and knowing that cars are such massive wealth destroyers, yeah. knowing that, I think, can really help us to intelligently allocate our assets in different ways. Like you mentioned, spending them on experiences especially when those experiences are with friends that yeah. builds memories. So yeah. if you and I, Ben, were sitting around a campfire 15 years from now, uh, with a bunch of our friends, we're not going to talk about the car we bought back in 2024. No, we're not. We're not. We'll talk about the stuff we did, you know, the dumb stuff we did, the fun stuff we did because it's experiences, especially when they're shared with people that we, we love for our, our friends, those become parts of our identity that we relive. You know, yeah. in a way, they get enhanced, whereas yeah. the car just depreciates both monetarily and in our memory. Yeah, and it's it's weird because um, we're big fishing fans at the Davies house. Uh, huge fishing fans. Love it. My oldest son especially. And um, you can spend a lot of money on fishing. And there's this there's this new thing. It's not so new now out called a live scope, where it's, it's like this basically $10,000 deal where you can literally watch the fish swim and you can watch your lure in the, in the water. Whoa. Uh, and so we, we haven't been thinking about buying it. It's just too much money for us. But, um, even if we did have it, some of our best memories, uh, 
our Northern Ontario, my uncle's cottage in a little boat with a 9.9 stuffing the kids in it and just having a blast fishing. Wasn't it wasn't a seventy thousand dollar ranger? It really didn't matter. And when you look back at the pictures, you're just looking at oh, I remember, I remember that, and it was an amazing week or two, not because of the boat we were in, but because of who was actually in the boat with us. Yeah, and, and we for we forget that so often. And the other side of the thing when you're talking about cars, you know, it's. It's a big amount of selfishness, too, in, in, if you think about it, or maybe a little bit self-absorbed to think that when I drive into a parking lot, everyone's looking at what I'm driving. So if I have rust on the side of my van, then everyone's looking at that. But it, I think everybody driving into the parking lot with that mindset is thinking the same thing. What are people <laughs> thinking about me, right? Like, yeah. if you're driving that nice car, you're not looking at everyone else's car. You're just hoping people see yours. Uh, maybe if you're driving a clunker, you're just hoping no one's looking. But it's it's all kind of self-absorbed, where at the end of the day, none of that, how you got there doesn't even really matter. It just matters that you got there. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, financial, or professional advice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and are for informational purposes only and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Sterling Mutuals, Inc. Mutual funds and ETFs provided through Sterling Mutuals, Inc. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.